Ruth chapter 1. Um, so, um, yeah, Ruth has been, uh, like, where I've been camping out lately. We've never taught on Ruth before this summer, so it's kind of new material for me. Um, it is a, a book that's, like, speaking kind of profoundly uh, into the realities of, of my world right now. And um, I trust that this week and next week as we unpack Ruth that you'll maybe find yourself somewhere in, in Ruth as well. There's too much for me to cover in these four chapters this week and next week. So I encourage you like, to read the book of Ruth this week, all right? It'll take you 30 minutes, four chapters, I don't know, 80, 90 verses, whatever it is. It's not that long, but read it. Don't be ruthless. Read the book of Ruth. You'll like it. Well, I told, uh, I told Paul last month that I was going to be doing some uh, teaching on the book of Ruth, and she said, oh, that's so great. I love Ruth. I've been listening to Alistair Begg's summer podcast on Ruth. I said, like, that's not great. The, the great expositor, the Scottish preacher, Alistair Begg, he's doing his series on Ruth this summer. I said, if people from EV Free are listening to him and then listening to me, I'm going to seem like amateur hour uh, as, we get to this, as we get to this book. And I mean, if you've ever heard him preach, I mean, he could, he could like, his voice so rich. He could, he could read a, like a, a lawnmower manual, right? And you'd be saying like, that's all profound. And I want to like listen to a few years ago, I was, um, was going to do a, a talk on Exodus chapter 3, and I noticed where I was one week before I was going to speak there, uh, the great Old Testament scholar, Walter Kaiser, was going to be speaking on Exodus chapter 3. And I, like, it, it kind of threw me off a little bit, so I went and talked. I said, Dr. Kaiser, I know you, you're an Old Testament, you can speak about anything, so can you talk about something different than Exodus chapter 3 one week before at the same place? I'm going to talk about Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush story. And he said, I can't because I did Exodus 2 last time. I'm going to do Exodus 3 this time. That's just the way I roll. And I said, wow. I said, well, can you like throw the sermon? Like, can you like, like really like, like do a bad job of it this time? And uh, he said something I'll never forget. He said, Barry, the, uh, the text is big enough for both of us. Um, and it is. And, and Ruth is big enough for Alistair Begg. It's big enough for me. It's big enough for you. And so we're going to go there today. I'm going to reflect a little bit this week and next week in a packed four chapters on just a few thoughts that have come to mind. And, and again, there's so much there that it would take weeks and weeks to like pour out uh, if we're going to really teach on Ruth. So we're going to have to only hit a few of the highlights. And I want you to um, go with me to this book. This book, by the way, that has more dialogue uh, percentage-wise than any other book in the Bible. So there's a lot of conversations in Ruth, especially with these three characters, Ruth, Naomi, and, and Boaz. And we, have, we see Ruth and Naomi in the first chapter. Boaz doesn't enter until scene two. But here's how Ruth begins in verse one of chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Well, when you read that first phrase in there, in the days when the judges ruled, there's a famine in the land, you realize, okay, it's a tough time. There's a famine in the land. But it's worse than you might think because there is a famine in the land. There is a drought that's caused this family to come upon hard economic times. But when it says in the days that the judges ruled, we get like, what does that mean? Well, to understand that, you have to actually go back one verse prior to that, which is the very last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, it says, this is how the book of Judges ends. Talk about a downer. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. 
That was what it was like in the days the judges ruled. So it was not just a famine economically that affected this family, but it was a famine morally that affected a culture. Because if you look at the cycle through the book of Judges, what happens is you know, God's people follow his word, and then they begin to drift and depart from his word, and then they start doing what was right in their own eyes. And after a while, because of that um, lawlessness in terms of God's law, things begin to come unraveled for them. And the enemy comes in, and oppression begins, and there's persecution, and, 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 and God's people, with all of their sin, they repent, and God in his loving kindness forgives, and they return to God, and they repent, and they, and they follow God's word again, and they obey him for a while, and then it comes again where they start doing what was right in their own eyes. And this cycle repeats its way through the book of Judges. And this is the scene. This is the context that we enter when we get to Ruth chapter 1. Not one famine, but two. There is a family going through a hard time financially. And there's a culture that is going through a hard time in terms of morally. I don't know, you pick your family. Which one's bothering you more right now? It might be one, it might be the other. It might be both. But this is the context that happens when we enter into the story of a family. A story of a family, four chapters between the judges and 1 Samuel that introduces the kings. So you have flawed and godly leaders, flawed and godly leaders um, at the high level, and then there's a family. And I think this book speaks to our realities as the ordinary, regular people of God living out our faith in a day-to-day way, sometimes stumbling and sometimes going through some hard times. This is the story of Ruth. And the book begins with a father, a mother, and they're two boys, and they fall on hard economic times, so they leave Bethlehem, and they go what ends up being a 10-day journey across the mountains, across the Jordan River, into Moab. And this is where we pick up the next few verses in chapter 1, which are kind of written in a matter-of-fact kind of way, but listen to how profoundly sad they are. The man's name was Elimelech, verse 2, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So as, as unemotional as this sounds, it is a very emotional time for Naomi, this widow who not only lost her husband, but after her sons married, lost one and then lost the other in a foreign land. Blow after blow, right? Tragedy after tragedy as this story unfolds in the very beginning of the book of Ruth. And she's left with, with two widowed daughters-in-law and no grandchildren and by the end of chapter 1, it's, it's at least 10 years later, um, Naomi finally goes back to Bethlehem. And she is so beaten up emotionally, they can hardly recognize her. Look at verse 19. It said, the whole town was stirred, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I, you know, if there's a country song in there somewhere, um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that's the, that's the makings of it. I actually, I was sitting in, at home yesterday, I, I actually thought, if I was to write a country song about that, what would it sound like? I know you're going to think this is Willie Nelson, but this is actually what I wrote. I said, and I'm not going to sing. I tried to get my, my teenage son to play his fiddle up here with me, but that wasn't going anywhere. Um, 
Here's a song, it's called, uh, one verse of it, that's all I've written so far. It's called Don't Call Me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, I feel like a quitter. The good Lord's made my life so hard and I'm getting bitter. Don't call me Naomi, life's one tough sled to pull. I've come back to town empty, though when I left here I was full. Um, so that's about it right there, so. Yeah, no, please. But if any of you are blue grass, you know, types and you want to like record this, we can split the royalties um, towards Biola scholarships or something. So, so the book starts hard. It starts in despair. But we've got to talk about the end of the book. Spoiler alert, we're going to go there, is that through the course of these four chapters, Ruth returns with Naomi. And Ruth meets this guy named Boaz, who is wealthy, who is well-respected, who has a great network, who is kind-hearted, the ideal man, she, and she ends up marrying him. And you look at the very last verses of the book of Ruth, and it says that Boaz married Ruth and they became the parents of a boy named Obed. It says, and Obed became the father of a boy named Jesse. And Jesse became the father of a boy named David. And David became a king. So you can see that God's redemptive work is, is happening in the book of Ruth despite the despair of Ruth chapter one. Not just to make their lives better, but to fulfill his redemptive purposes for the world to set the captives free. Something's happening through this widowed woman and her widowed daughter-in-law, the most unlikely of characters. And of course, as we think about King David's lineage leading to Christ, the king of kings, we're gonna come back to that powerful ending next week. But you have to know when you get into the book of Ruth, that there's an epic ending, and that's going to carry you through these very difficult chapters. And the difficult chapters are there. Listen to some of the other things that Naomi says in chapter one. The Lord's hand is turned against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And you say, like, hey, that's, isn't that twisted theology? Is, is Naomi allowed to talk about God like that? You know, that's, that's irreverent. But, but Naomi, she, she, she wasn't questioning her faith. She was describing her faith. And she was saying, God, you are almighty, but I don't know what's going on in my life right now. Her husband died. Her two sons died. You know, I get her bitterness. We have a neighbor who's... Um, we were making a little bit too much noise one night, and he let us know over the wall that we were. So the next day, I said, you know, I haven't met him before. I'm going to talk to him. So we started to talk, and tough life. I mean, he had a Vietnam vet, had some hard things happen, and then he told me he had two sons. He and his wife, one son, when he was a little boy, died. And he said our other son, when he was in his 20s, died. And, you know, the death of his sons, the blows that you experience, the difficult times that happen are reminders that life can be really hard and you can feel like Naomi felt when she said, the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. You know, it's funny because it was Naomi's great-great-grandson, David, who said the same thing. Psalm chapter 13, he said, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? I've been praying this prayer recently. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? You know it. We've all said that, I guess, at some point, and I think God calls us to lament. He doesn't call us to these happy Christian cliches. That, that actually is bad theology. But to ask those profound, honest questions, like, God, where were you when my mother died too young? Where were you when my, like, my son's sickness didn't get better? Where were you when that, that job evaporated? Where were you when my, that romance blew up in my face? Where were you when our kids went AWOL? Where were you when 
like legislation in California that presses up against our, our fundamental beliefs is, is, is happening. God, God, where are you? And these are questions that we ask in the famine. We don't get to pick our famines, but we do get to pick how we respond to our famines. This is what we're learning in Ruth chapter 1. And I want to remind you again that this book of Ruth, it, it begins with death, it, it ends with life. It begins with despair, it ends with joy. It begins with famine, it ends with abundance. It begins with despair and it, hopelessness. And it ends by, by pointing, really pointing to Jesus. In the middle of this famine, somehow Ruth, Naomi, can't really see how God is at work in their lives. That one day, this widowed woman and her widowed daughter-in-law would have children and, and, and grandchildren that would end up being kings, and leading to the king of kings. But she can only see a few steps ahead. And, and you wonder, well, well did, those, did those bad things happen to her because she had made some bad choices? Maybe she was in a famine because they shouldn't have left Bethlehem to go to the sinful land of Moab which God talks about in other points of Scripture. They shouldn't have had let her sons marry these pagan women. Did her bad circumstances come because of bad choices that she made? Well, the text doesn't say because I think it, it doesn't matter. The story's not about our punishment. The story's about God's providence. The story's about looking forward in the midst of the famine. And, and one day, you know... God's providence is going to show up profoundly through their story, though they can't quite see it yet. And the way in which God's providence begins to work is they begin to see these little glimpses of mercy, little glimpses of hope, little glimpses of grace through the ways in which people are treating other people. There's actually two times in the book of Ruth where God directly and miraculously intervenes. In chapter 1, verse 6, it said, God ended the famine, and made the land fertile again. In chapter 4, verse 13, it said, God ended Ruth's barrenness and made her womb fertile again. Those are the only two times God directly intervenes. The rest of the book of Ruth is how God's mercy and grace shows up through profound kindness among people who are are remarkably different from one another. You know, think about the, 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 the kindness that, that, that Ruth's daughters-in-law showed to her in verse 8. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And let me add, add one thing that, that though Naomi was, was bitter and expressed that bitterness, she never projected that bitterness onto other people. Though she was feeling some pretty profound pain, she never um, afflicted somebody else else with that pain. Um, This book is oozing with kindness. And the kindness that is most remarkable is not kindness among those who are similar, but kindness among those who are different. In Ruth and her daughters-in-law, there was a language difference. There was a religion difference. There was a cultural difference. There was a generational difference. And next week when we read about Boaz, you'll see his kindness towards Ruth where there was an economic difference and gender differences and how kindness transcends and cut through, through these profound differences in people's lives. 
So I wrote, I wrote, I wrote this book called um, Love Kindness. It came out a couple of months ago. And uh, every, every Sunday morning, we get the New York Times um, on our driveway. And I, I checked again this morning, and uh, the book's not listed in the bestseller again. Um, and I actually was in a, a bookstore in Chicago um, about a month ago, and I, I went up to the guy behind the counter. I said, um, sir, I'm looking for a book called Love Kindness. And he says, Love Kindest? I said, no, 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 Love Kindness. And he said, well, that doesn't ring a bell. And, 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 and he said, well, let me look it up. So he's looking it up. He goes, oh, yeah, I, I found it. It's actually it's a, it's, a, it's a gospel music CD. I said, no, it's not really a gospel music CD. You must be thinking about the country songs I've been writing. Um, <laughs> just, just, just kidding. Um, and I, he, I said, can you keep looking? He keeps looking. Then he found, oh, yeah. He said, there's a book called Love Kindness written by a guy named Barry Corey. Is that the one? I said, yeah, that's, that's the one. He said, we don't have it. So he said, I can get it for you in three days. And I said, no, no, it's all right. I'll... I'll find it somewhere else. Like in the suitcase in the car where I was, it's full of that book, and I was going to, I wanted to order 200. Like, Can you order 200? I'll be back next week to pick them up. Put them on a big display, and I'll just go. Didn't, didn't, didn't happen. But one of the dimensions of kindness I wrote about in this book was, how do you express kindness to those who are like, whose, whose worldviews are, are profoundly different than yours? Or even when you disagree with someone so fundamentally on issues, not of triviality, but issues of importance. What is kindness look like that way. And one of the ways we, we do this is we need to um, begin thinking even more that everyone we meet is made in the image of God. Everyone is an image bearer of God, whether they realize it or not. And that means we have something to learn from everyone. It doesn't matter if that person is, is disabled or old or gay or liberal or an atheist or undocumented or that colleague that gets on your nerves or your angry uncle. Everyone is made in the image of God. and We have something to learn from God's image bearers. Again, whether they realize it or not. And, and we have to see that, that even if we fundamentally disagree with people on, on, in, in major ideas, that we don't, we don't beat an idea by beating a person, despite what the current political climate may be modeling for us. That if we are called by God not just to love our neighbor, but Jesus says, you heard, love your, I'm saying love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And I believe what Jesus meant by enemy is someone that's not your neighbor, someone who is outside of that realm of the familiar for you. And when Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, sometimes we fuse those two verbs, love and pray, when they're they're very different. And sometimes we do one or the other so that our prayer is loveless or our love is prayerless. And kindness calls us into proximity with somebody else where the love of Christ in all of its truth bears witness to his reality. And that kindness comes across with grace and winsomeness and love and soft edges. I talk about that in the book as a life of a firm center and soft edges. And I believe that um, this is the life that Jesus calls us to. And it is a radical life. It's a revolutionary life. It's a life that is sometimes rejected I actually feared that this week. On Tuesday, I was going up to Sacramento to meet um, at the 12th hour in this bill with some, or at least 11th hour, I guess, with some legislators to talk about this bill. And um, on Monday, this fellow I know contacted me and said, I, I, I know a few people up in Sacramento that I'd like you to talk to. 
And one of them happens to be this person whose name I knew but I had never met who is probably one of the most kind of outspoken legislators over this whole idea of what is deeply meaningful to Biola and to other schools in terms of our values. And knowing that I knew I'd actually met with this person before. And so I was a little nervous on Monday night. I was anxious. I was had a trouble sleeping. And so late Monday night, I texted some friends of mine. And here's the text that I sent them, thinking about the next day, what if I go into offices there and, and I'm just written off as a Bible-thumping bigot. So I wrote this. It came together over the weekend for me to head to Sacramento in the morning for 12 meetings and interviews on this California Bill 1146, including a meeting with someone who may be the most outspoken legislator against schools with policies on LGBT behavior. We quote-unquote happened to have a mutual friend who arranged a meeting between us tomorrow. Need wisdom, grace, and love in supersized portions Thanks for praying for me on this. Feels like an upstream paddle in class six whitewater. My arms are already tired. Got a lot of responses. One of them said this, praying for you. You are in this position for a reason. Paddle hard and rest in God's eddies when he provides them. You be his voice. Continue to let him speak through you. Here's another one that really shook me deeply. Prayed for you this morning, Barry. The image that came to mind was God's servant David against a larger foe. But the weapons this time were the fruit of the Spirit. May you feel the power of God's Holy Spirit all day today. And may your eyes be open to God's tender presence each and every hour. This image threw me, and I clung to that, that I would go to Sacramento, and the weapons that I would bring would be the fruit of the Spirit of love, and joy, and patience, and kindness. And I landed in Sacramento on Tuesday morning, and I began these discussions all day long, more than 12 meetings, and uh, conversation after conversation. But I knew that at the end of the day, I was meeting with Democrats, I was meeting with Republicans. At the end of the day, I was going to meet with this one legislator, the one that I was most concerned about, who who I know deeply and passionately oppose some of Bible's values on human sexuality. I thought I'm going to go in, certainly not compromising biblical truth, but I'm going to go in, I'm going to do my best to lean on kindness, to lean on, on, on true, biblical, profound Christian grace. And so I went into this office, and we sat there together, and I opened up the conversation by saying, you know, I'm coming here humbly, and I'm coming here knowing that there's, I don't understand everything, and I want to, I want to hear from you. I want you to know that Biola is a Christian community, but we're a learning community. If there are better ways that we can treat our students in such a way that, 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 they, that they feel safe and that they are flourishing in this Christian community, I, like, I want to know how we can do things better. And I invited him to come to Biola. I invited him to come and have lunch. I invited him to meet our students, to meet our, our, some of our al- alumni. And he actually told me to, to take me up on the offer. He's actually coming to Biola. And I don't, I don't, think, I don't think kindness changed his mind, but I think, I know it didn't. But I think kindness began to shift his perspective. I told him about how Biola was a university far more what we're for than what we're against, despite what he'd been told. And, and, I, and I prayed going in there that he would see the character of Jesus in me rather than the caricature of religion in me, if you know what I mean. And kindness reveals Jesus 
I think, almost better than anything else. And, 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 I, and, I, and my hope for the world more than ever is that Christians live these lives of profound Christ-like kindness. And I, I want Bible University certain to be, certainly to be this leading light in higher education, but striving to be full of truth, firm center, right? And, 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 and full of grace, soft edges, and that we're not trying to like have one more than the other. Jesus, it says, came full of grace and full of truth. He wasn't like 70-30, 60-40. We are called to lean forward, even with the tensions that it brings, full of truth and full of grace. And when I went in to see that legislator 4 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon of this week, I, I, I prayed that he would be gracious to me and you know what? He actually was um, far more gracious than maybe I, I thought. But, but even if he wasn't, kindness is still the right way. For kindness is far more about being obedient than it is about being accepted. Sometimes your kindness makes you vulnerable. You may be received, your kindness. Your kindness may be rejected but your kindness will never be forgotten because there is something haunting about kindness because it comes from the heart of God and it reveals the true nature of who Jesus is. And Paul talks about this in fragrance language, saying that you are the aroma of Christ. To some, you're the smell of life. To others, you're the smell of death. But you, church, keep smelling like Jesus. This is what you're called to do. Kindness is not about being accepted. Kindness is about being obedient and even in, in Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Kindness leads to repentance. Not my swagger, not my judgment, not my attitude, not my railings, not my blogs, not my shouting matches, but it's kindness that leads to repentance. And the Holy Spirit's been convicting me even on that passage because I think, well, if I'm kind, maybe people will see Christ, but sometimes kindness leads to my own repentance of those blind spots that I've had about those who I have, I have made caricatures of and I have categorized. But kindness sometimes leads to my own repentance. And that means kindness is a lot more about listening than we think it is, listening to those whose views are different than ours. And you can listen without capitulating on the gospel. But sometimes we listen, well, waiting to respond rather than listening while wanting to learn. And kindness is the latter and not the former. And this is what's happening in the book of Ruth. Ruth says to Naomi, like, I'm going to come along with you. And she says in that great passage in chapter 1, verse 16, you know what, Naomi? I'm going with you. I am, I'm, I'm all in because you're in a suffering place in your life and kindness is calling me to accompany you along the journey. And know how radical that assignment was for Ruth. She says, she says, as a matter of fact, your people are going to be my people. Your place is going to be my place. Your, your, your God is going to be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will also be buried. In other words, even when you die, Naomi, I'm not going back. I am all in this radical call of kindness, which is a radical call on our own lives as Jesus' disciples. Don't urge me to leave you, she said, or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. 
the profound pain of Naomi and how she copes with it. You wonder, like, like this book, it's not called Naomi. It's called Ruth. The only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Jew, named after this young foreigner from this pagan land, named after this widow, this woman, this, this poor Middle Eastern refugee. The book's named after her. This outcast that God was using for his redemptive purposes, even though she couldn't see it. All she was trying to do was live a life of faithfulness and obedience and kindness. And she said along the way, you know what, Naomi, your God's going to be my God. I'm giving up what's behind me and I'm, I'm, I'm walking with you. I think the book of Ruth is the most powerful book about kindness in the Old Testament. I didn't write about it in my book, but it's, 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 it's powerful. And it's powerful because this young, widowed daughter-in-law named Ruth says to Naomi, I'm coming alongside you. I'm going to walk with you. You know, Ruth sounds a lot like Jesus in Mark chapter 5. When this crowd was pressing around him and his disciples were on this agenda, and this woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, suffering like Naomi, said she had suffered under the care of many doctors and had spent everything that she had, but instead of getting better, she grew worse. So remember, she came up behind Jesus in the crowd. She touched his clothes. She thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. And when Jesus felt this power go out from him, he said he turned around in the crowd. And he said, who touched me? And his disciples says, you see all these people crowding around you? And you say, who touched you? It says, Jesus kept looking to see who had done it. And then this woman, realizing what had happened to her, she came and she fell at Jesus' feet. And she told him the truth. And this nameless woman suddenly gets a name. He says, daughter. He calls her daughter. The only time in all the Gospels Jesus calls anybody daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. You see, I am like the disciples so much where I'm saying like, you know, we've got an agenda. We're moving forward. We've got things we're going to do. We're, we're, like, we're, we're on this campaign. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to look around. There's someone here that I need to come alongside. And the disciples say, you see all these people crowding around you, and you can say, who touched you? It says, Jesus kept looking to see who had touched him. Augustine says that our faith is not like pressing flesh, but it is touching faith. And this is the story of a touching faith, this woman who had enough courage to leave everything behind to accompany Naomi. Jesus, who models this in in, in Christ-like fashion, who he is, who comes alongside this woman, who puts everything else aside that, that, that is a distraction. And, you know, for, for me, that's so hard. And I think multitasking is the curse to kindness. And Ruth says, I'm all in. And Ruth is one of those glimpses of God's mercy along the dark path that Naomi's on, to let her know that God's redemptive plan is at work and God's biggest sovereignty is underway even though you can't see it. Let me end with the final verse in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. It says, So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It seems like Just a nondescript ending, but how did the chapter begin? It begins by saying there's a famine in the land. (laughs) 
How's it ending? It's ending with it like, like the barley harvest is beginning. There are signs of hope on the horizon. Things are happening in your world that you might not be able to see because of the darkness that's all around you. And there are these glimpses of God's mercy and this profound suffering that come through the kindness of this daughter-in-law towards her mother-in-law. And Naomi, Naomi I mean, she's right to believe that, that you know, God reigns on the just and the unjust. But she needs to see that in her pain, he is at work. In the midst of her pain, he governs the affairs of nations. In the midst of her pain, he is at work in these families. In the midst of her pain, he is giving her daily bread. The famine is there. But the barley harvest is beginning. And if Naomi could only believe in the dark what God had promised in the light, that one day he has promised you and me, Naomi, he's going to make crooked roads straight. Isaiah says this, and Jesus says this. If Naomi really knew that one day she would be a grandmother after all, if Naomi could only fast forward to realize that her her great-great-grandson would be given the name of David, she can't see this happening amidst all of her pain, but God is at work in subtle ways through the obedient kindness of his people. That one day, that barley crop would break open to this incredible harvest that points towards Jesus. She probably had that deep pain in her heart, the same pain that David had when he wrote that 13th Psalm that says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? But it's a psalm that her great, great grandson wrote that ends by saying, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. You know, lately, I can tell you this because you're like my home church, but lately I've, I've felt like I'm in a famine. Um, nine years uh, at Biola, this has been the hardest season for me. It was nine years ago last month that I showed up at uh, Biola's campus for the very first time. And uh, my friend Mike Leahy, who's out here today, came with another friend and like, anointed me with oil and said, like, you know, you know, may you begin this job with a great sense of humility and God's wisdom and strength. And sometimes I look back on that day and honestly I think, like, if, if I had known what things were going to be like, would I have been as willing to come? But we can't pick our famines, but we can pick how we respond to our famines. And this is a book that's given me great hope that God somehow, in his sovereignty, in the big famine of culture or the famine of your life, God is at work. And I told you how much I'm feeling the weight of this California legislation, wondering at times how long this famine will last and how much of it will take its toll on higher education nationally or the schools in California or on Biola or, or, or on me, for that matter. And this week was not a time to declare victory, but I do think what happened in Sacramento this week, even with the Senate Bill 1146, it was a barley sprout. That God is saying, you know what, it's okay. There are signs on the horizon that that I'm in control, and I'm working out my providence somehow in this story. There are no surprises to God, and God says, I'm just calling you to humbly do your job. Trust and obey in the famines of your life. 
reminding me that God is sovereign and he is fulfilling his redemptive plan even when we can't see the full picture. But the glimpses of mercy that I saw this week in a, in a lawmaker receiving my kindness, in, in, a, in a bill that's now lost its severity, those are sprouts of barley in God's epic harvest that he is working on. And in those winter seasons of your life, I think about what C.S. Lewis wrote in that chronicle of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he said, at the sound of Aslan's roar, sorrows will be no more. And when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The harvest is coming. We don't know what it's going to be like. God is at work, and though it may be far off, though it may be even beyond my lifetime, his redemptive purposes will be fulfilled, and the nations will ultimately see the glory of God and the resurrected and the exalted Christ, and he's doing this through us, his obedient children, faithful in the ordinary tasks of our life, living out this profound grace and kindness to others. Keep living this way, church. Amen.